Welcome to Your Family Dog, a podcast dedicated to helping families love living with dogs. Hi, and welcome back to Your Family Dog. I'm Julie Fudge-Smith, and this week I'm here with Tina Spring, and we are going to talk today about arousal. What is it, and why is it commonly mistaken to uh, people think that it might be happiness? And then we're going to talk a little bit about how we can manage arousal using sequencing, which, um, so this is basically going to be Tina talking the entire time because she is far more experienced at this than I am, which is why I'm introducing and she's going to talk first because although, um, I experience a lot of arousal in dogs, I do see that, um, one of the things that we want to talk about is is how do we frame arousal so that under so that uh, owners really understand what we're talking about. And I thought Tina came up with a great analogy. So with that, there you go, Tina. What's your analogy for arousal? So I've spent a you know thirty year career trying to explain arousal and how it can be problematic or difficult um, or unpredictable, right? Create unpredictability in a system with families with dogs. And so recently on a Ask the Trainer session, I came up with a new way to frame it and it seemed to really hit home. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share it with you guys and maybe it, it'll help or it won't. So lots of times what I see, what I observe is that people are viewing a dog who's amped up and kind of nutty as happy. And yes, and that- I see that too. Yeah, no, it even happens in our homes, right? I'm sure that there are times that even Clemmy gets herself all excited about something. And we want, our hearts want to frame it as the dog being happy because we love them and we want them to be happy. Yes, we do. So recently I came up with this way to frame it that seems to be helping families grasp what I'm talking about in a different way. So pick a thing that your dog gets, quote, excited about. And then what I want you to do is imagine I'm offering you your favorite kind of cupcake. If you behaved the way your dog behaves in that situation where you think your dog's happy, but I'm arguing that your dog is just aroused and nutty, um, would you be happy like to people observing that behavior? Would they go, Oh, Julie's happy. Or would they think that you are perhaps a little cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs in that moment, like out of control, overexcited. That's what arousal is. And it's re it's, it's kind of kissing cousins to happy, but I could make a cogent argument. It's not happy. It's just out of control. Absolutely. I, I feel that that uh, it's 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 arousal is not the same emotional state as happy. Arousal is sort of beyond an emotional state into total chaos of behavior. And so I think that's a chaotic emotional state. It's not a definable emotional state because I, I sometimes think that with arousal, you have a wide variety of emotions going on, which is what brings the arousal around. Because with a dog that maybe is, you know, anxious about, it could be a combination of anxiety, happiness, anticipation, uncertainty. So you have this sort of this 
chaotic flood of emotions, and that comes out sideways as arousal. If a dog is happy, it's generally like, hi, I'm really happy to see you, and there's some wiggling, and the tail's going, and we're, it's just, it's a more controlled emotion than arousal. And uh, for me, one of the best ways to tell whether a dog is aroused is when they do that pounce-off thing, which I I absolutely hate. They get so excited that a dog who's happy to see you and wants to make contact with you because it's a loving contact will come up and lean against you or maybe put their paws up on you, but it's a gentle putting of the paws up and leaning into you as opposed to putting their paws up and using you like a backboard and just pouncing off of you. To me, that's a clear sign of an aroused dog because this is not a contact made with me that's either friendly or loving or warm or whatever word you want to use. It's just I'm making contact because I got to make contact with something. What do you think? I would agree. And in my experience, you're not that far from a bite. That is my experience. Yes, because arousal is not the same as happiness. And arousal can happen for a wide variety of reasons. And it could be it's happening because of anxiety and or frustration. Right. And just being overwhelmed. So if we absolutely. think about how excited we get about things when we're highly aroused, let's say somebody attacks you on social media when they just like they don't know you, they just misconstrued something that they've read and they've decided that they, you know, they are just the person to set you to rights, right? That's a ex- situation that for most people is arousing, right? You're there's a lot of conflicting emotions and you're probably not responding in a particularly helpful or de-escalating way. Likely you're like, Oh, I'm going hammer and tongs over this, right? I'm going to, I'm going to kick that particular hornet's nest. So we know this with our kids, right? When our child is having a temper tantrum, we need to not be having a temper tantrum. And in my experience, arousal in our dogs we kind of accidentally build it. Um, and I think it's our enthusiasm. Well, and we're, and honestly, like every single parent on the planet's in a hurry. <laughs> yes, <laughs> so absolutely. It starts with simple things. It starts with hurrying the puppy from their enclosure to outside to go potty. It starts with hurrying your puppy to get them fed or hurrying your dog to on a walk um, past the dog that's menacing them. It's hurrying to get your dog to come inside because it's dark outside and the dog is barking and it's annoying your neighbors. It's hurrying to greet the dog that's barking and carrying on like a goofball to get fed or to get cuddles or to get a hello. And so it feeds an energy into the system that the older I get, the more unsafe that energy feels. I'm not sure that when I'm young, I recognized how out of control it felt. I, I think you're right. I um, I would agree with you that, that uh, as I get older, I'm much more aware of those kind of um, let's put it this way, I mean, perhaps less stable, less, you know, that, that something f- that I'm paying much more attention to, to the little voice in my head that says something's off, that, right. that, that this is not quite what I want 
to experience. And when I was younger, I would just dismiss it of, oh, you know, they're just excited. What the heck? But it does. And especially as if you're dealing with dogs that have to, to that with an, with an older person, somebody who is a, a senior and getting a dog, these are issues that must be addressed. Absolutely must be addressed. So one of the things that I think families, at least on my service, we're often talking about is that we're training the dog. We're training in sequences all day, every day, whether we recognize it or not. And we are sometimes feeding exactly the things that are frustrating or concerning. So we can use sequences. I actually think sequencing is really underutilized in dog training. I think dog trainers are good at it, but I don't think we often bless families with it. So I'm going to see if I can explain it and then I'll give, um, I'll give an example. Perfect. So, so sequencing loosely is using an environmental cue, something that an, an action or an experience in life to inform the learner what we, how we want them to respond. So you're building an automatic response. So an example of building that unintentionally is all of our dogs have learned what their food bowl means. We did not sit down and spend 40 minutes one day going food bowl, chicken, food bowl, chicken, food bowl, chicken, to teach our dog that the food bowl meant, hey, you're going to get breakfast. Our dogs figured it out probably straight Pavlovian conditioning. Um, and then generally the more excited our dogs got about dinner, the faster we went because we were trying to make the, the silliness and the chaos. We wanted to quash that a little bit because it's uncomfortable, right? So the dog is enthusiastic about eating in the beginning and then their enthusiasm gets bigger and bigger. And then we might do something silly by like going, by saying, do you want breakfast? I bet breakfast. And we are amping the dog up. Because we're framing it as the, it, we're building the dog's happiness instead of just we're feeding some intense energy into the situation, right? So this is an example of a, we now have a dog who barks 87 times and spins and jumps and leaps and you're tripping over the dog and you're frustrated with them while you're trying to fix the dog food bowl and feed them. The chances of an error being made by the dog where the dog knocks the bowl out of your hand or accidentally knocks a child over or accidentally stomps on your sandal wearing toes and, you know, injures you, hurts you accidentally is really high. The, the probability of that is increased by the energy built into the system. If instead we harness the power of sequencing and we teach the dog what we want them to do instead of all the silliness we can have a really powerful outcome. So an example would be teaching my dog. This is one I've taught previously years ago when I wasn't working as much and I had very well-trained dogs. If you rang the doorbell or if you knocked on my door, you heard nine dogs go to their crates. So the barking, yes, there was barking. There was a cacophony of barking, but that barking you from the door, you could hear that it was moving away from the doors. And it was, I didn't want a nine dog craziness at the front door. Like, that's not comfortable for the person coming in. I can't even get to the door to let them in. I'm pretty sure at least one 
ill-behaved rotten dog will run out the door and try to get hit by a car. It's just mayhem and foolishness that I'd rather not deal with. So instead, I just taught the dogs doorbell, crate, doorbell, crate, doorbell, crate, doorbell, crate, until over time they figured it out, the same way that they figured out their dog food balls. By the way, I do the same thing for dog food bowls. So our dogs are fed. If they're not worked, they're fed in their crates. So when you pick up Marco's bowl, he runs to his crate, which is the safest option because he is prone to resource guarding. And I don't want there to be conflicts over food. He sometimes needs to be reminded, but we all need good <laughs> That's true. That's true. So one of the things that is, um, before we go on to the next thing, I think that one of the things that would be really helpful for our owners is, um, I'm sure they're following along and probably everybody's raising their hand saying, yes, that's my dog at dinner time. Um, and that's my dog at the door, except the barking, not the running to the crate thing. So I think what might be actually useful is if you were to explain a brief protocol about how you would teach your dog. It's great to say, I taught my dog to go to the crate when the doorbell rang, but I'm sure people are going, how do I do that? Um, how do I pair the door and, and, the, and the crate or the mat or whatever? And so I think perhaps just giving an illustration about how you do that would then make it feel like it's a realistic possibility. Absolutely. So I think that there's more than one way to do it. I think if you pulled 25 dog trainers, we would all have a little bit different way to do it. I'll just yes. Give you the and all 24, answer. the only thing they would agree on is that the 25th is doing it wrong. That I'm wrong. That's right. what they would decide. <laughs> that's, that's who I am this week, which is totally fine. Like I just keep giving it. Yeah, well, that's what I tell my owners when when we train go to mat. I have a way that I train it, but I usually give them a couple different articles and say, "Look, this is the way I train it, but I have no proprietary interest in 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 how you do it. Just that you do it. So if this way from the whole dog journal is more comfortable for you, have at it. You know, like I'm I'm down with. There's lots of ways to get where we're going as long as it's gentle and kind. I think it's fine. So. You can start as easily as if you we're I'm going to assume a single dog household. If it's a multiple dog household, you have to build it separately for safety reasons. And also because there's one of you and your dog requires one-on-one attention. So I grab my dog's dinner. I stand in front of the crate. I look knowingly at the dog. I say bedtime and I throw three pieces of food into the dog's crate. The dog goes in the crate. The dog comes right back out again. I say bedtime in the crate. They go. And now we're building a rehearsal of bedtime becomes a cue for, hey, go in your crate. So over time, the reinforcer of the food that I was going to feed my dog anyway, it's not super extra special stuff, but now the dog starts receiving it as a reinforcer for going in the crate instead of it as a lure. And I'm very quick to move things from lures to reinforcers. I don't leave it as a lure very long. I, okay. I do too, yeah. because I think that that way, what, what I tell my owners is one of the reasons why you don't want to stick to a lure is because then you're stuck with food for the rest of the dog's life. If you move to a reward, then you can use, you can start substituting other things as rewards. So it, it opens up a wider variety of, of possibilities. And the more interesting your rewards can be and the more diverse they can be, the stronger the behavior is going to become. So we do want to remove the lure and move to rewarding as soon as possible. So right. that's just a little sort of, philosophy behind all this okay so now you've got the crate and you've got the kibble and you're saying bedtime and you're tossing 
Create or what or kennel up or whatever phrase. Right. Like there's not a magic word. Right? So you do that a couple then, times to lure. Then you say bedtime. They run in. Then you toss the treats in. Right. 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 Okay. So now we've got a behavior that's starting to get stronger. The dog's starting to learn what bedtime means and we're, or kennel up or whatever phrase you want. Then I grab a doorbell sound effect on my phone. Sometimes I even ah, grab one that so not that does not sound like my doorbell. That sounds like a different doorbell, right? One that my dog doesn't have an association with, right? Because your dog, your doorbell at home means and we all run to the door yelling, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then mayhem ensues, right? So we. Using a different novel doorbell is actually, from a behavior standpoint, an easier way to build a behavior instead of just counter conditioning. So then I it's ding dong from the doorbell sound effect. I look at the dog and say bedtime. And then I reward when the dog goes in the crate. I'm standing right at the crate. I'm not even near the front door, right? The dog's having an out of canine experience going, there's a debodicated doorbell sound. What is this about? And in extreme cases, I have started by saying ding dong or knock knock. (laughs) Like I, I have totally done that because for some dogs, like any doorbell will do the one on the TV, the one on the radio, they don't care. We must lose our marbles. And I want to try to, work some of that energy out of the system a little bit. So instead of the dog anticipating this sound means we all run to the door screaming and pushing each other. um, Instead, I want to kind of grab a hold of it on the front end and go, no, no, no. You have to listen for this sound because it means summer sausage is going to happen in your crate. That they, that is a program. The average pot cake can get behind. So so now I'm ding dong crate, ding dong crate, ding dong crate. And I slowly start moving closer and closer to the front door, having the dog drive to the crate. If the dog forgets, which happens when the door, when the doorbell sound happens, I enthusiastically head toward the crate. Right. Is there, is there, right. So then your behavior becomes the cue. There was a beautiful um, I, teaching a dog how to go to mat where um, one of the things that they taught these dogs who were a bit anxious at the door was just me leaning toward you is the cue that you run to the mat, right? So you're doing the same kind of thing is that you're teaching the dog when we hear this bell, we all are moving to the crate. And pretty soon all, it's going to get to the point where you don't actually have to run to the crate. You can probably just either move or gesture or look at the crate and the dog is going to move there because they tow tied your behavior as well to moving the crate. That's another example, I think, of sequencing, right? Yay? I would agree. And for those of you who haven't read it yet, read James Clear's Atomic Habit. This is all like his book is fantastic. I, I'm in the middle of it right now. I'm sure I will read it over and over and over again, like Pride and Prejudice, because there's magic in, in those pages. Right. Whether it's for humans or whether it is for our dogs or for parenting or there's business like there's magic in those in those pages. So I heartily recommend James Clear's Atomic Habits. It's fantastic. It's great. Talks about how to build good habits and how to break bad habits. And it's fantastic. And it's in layman's terms. 
It's very digestible. So that's what we're doing. We're breaking a bad habit and we're building a good one. That's loosely what sequencing is. So we're attaching it to something that the dog, we've taught the dog something that they're enjoying, relaxed, and now we're reconstituting the system. So over time, you move on to, so from the very first time I add a doorbell to the system, probably even before that, if I was to be honest, when a doorbell or a knock happens, I go and grab a handful of kibble and I head to the dog's crates saying joyfully bedtime, right? I'm ignoring anything that's happening at the front door. Honestly, if I was in the shower, I wouldn't be answering the door anyway. If I was sitting on, you know, the potty, I would, if I was up to my eyeballs cleaning up cat barf, I'm not going to the door. I'm cleaning up cat barf. That's what I'm doing. And whoever it is, will wait. Like, I love you. They'll wait. So from the beginning, I'm also preventing that other behavior. So okay. door, oh, so randomly, HelloFresh decides to drop off our box for the day and they ring the doorbell. I ignore it. I go to the kitchen. I grab a small handful of kibble I deposit each dog bedtime in their crate. I'm using it as a live action practice. I close the crate doors. I wait until they're settled. And then I go get the box and unpack it. Once everything's unpacked, recycling's put away, the, the quadrupeds can come back out of their crate. So we're they're not practicing charging the door and parking and pushing and shoving at the door and all of the silliness. I think, in my experience, one of the most powerful things we can do is build in safety protocols with sequencing. And so I'm going to give you an example, and this is one that Julie and I talked about before we started recording today, that we've built in to every board and train we've done recently. So we are teaching dogs uh, that when someone drops a leash, do a downstay. This that is, is so cool. That is just, that is just beautiful. I mean, I, the more I think about it, I think, oh my God, it'd be so handy in like so many different circumstances. It's almost like I can't count the number of circumstances where that would be so useful to have. Right. Beautiful. So, so I think about it like, you know, I'm, I trip and I drop the leash or my hands are full because I'm trying to do too many things at once and I drop the leash or uh, someone is helping me, a vet tech it has control of my dog and they drop the leash, right? Giving, giving our dogs something to do that they've tested, they, they know the behavior, they think it's fun as a game will inform when it's necessary. That's a really good point. And I want to stop right there because one of the things I want to tell people is that when I have, when I want to train a really strong, like reliable recall, I'm using not only food, but play. Because I think when you can make a behavior, not only is there a tasty reward at the end, but I'm really having fun with mom when I do this. You're using two of the most powerful motivators that a dog has, play and food. And so I think if you can find ways to incorporate play 
as well as food into your training, you're going to find that those behaviors are going to remain, are, are going to become very strong. The dogs are going to be eager to comply. And um, it, it, it also gives you an, another way in which your dog is, 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 you're communicating with your dog and you're building a relationship with your dog. So I think that using play and food is incredibly important whenever you can in training because it builds so many things on so many levels. Now, I could be wrong, but this is my own experience. So that's been my experience, too. And and so let me talk about how to do it, because I can hear you all going, well, fine, dog trainer, but how do you do that? So first is, if you haven't taught your dog a down or a drop, you need to do that first. You can, There's two super simple ways to do it. One is to do luring, which is what most people like to do. Treat against the nose, nose down to the dog's toes, hold. When they drop down, pay them. What a smart dog you are and then eventually put it on that lure hand signal typically over time becomes a loose hand signal for getting your dog to do it with no food in your hand right because we want to yes. we want to wean off the lure pretty quickly but the motion generally becomes some approximation yes. of that lure whether it's a drop which is which is a different than a down so a down typically is going to be a behavior, if we're talking to geeky dog trainers, where the dog moves into a sit and then lies down. That's what most people teach their dogs. A drop is where your dog goes into like downward dog, where it's a play bow and then they drop their fanny down. That's actually the fastest way to stop a dog. That's a lure from the nose backwards at that tiny little angle to your dog's toes the front end of the dog collapses and then the rear follows, that's a drop. So I, ha- I wanted to explain that before I started the bigger conversation because for this behavior, I don't use a down, I use a drop. And part of what happens when you do the approximation of that lure from a stand to a down is you get a hand signal that is a sweeping motion high to low. It's not the same as what we do when we're like, when it looks like we're pulling on a dog's chin hairs to get them to lie down, right? It's a bigger motion. Okay, so now we've got a dog who, and you can do it in a down or a drop. I'm just telling you what I do. Like, you're smart and pretty. Figure it out for yourselves. You'll be great. Okay, now it can be ugly but effective. I'm okay with it, right? Okay, so now... I That's kind of the essence of my training. Ugly but effective. Yes. 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 Ugly but effective, effective works for me. And lazy, ideally. Oh, okay, yeah. So- I'm a lazy trainer. There's no doubt about that one. Right. So-, so now I have the dog on a leash and I have an extra leash in my hand. And I make a big demonstrative, theatrical, dramatic throw the leash down with the drop hand signal. The leash flies ah. out of my hand like, like Spider-Man, right? <laughs> and the dog drops into the down and laughs at me and chicken happens. And we do that a whole bunch of times and I'm super, super dramatic about it, right? Because I want the dog to think this is funny. I want them watching for when the crazy woman with the chicken is dropping <laughs> the leash. Remember, the dog's on a separate leash. So I'm not right. losing control of my dog. My, I'm doing okay, it with an extra leash. My question is, do you have matching leashes or does it not matter what the I leash? I okay. don't think it matters. Okay. Over time, 
I'm holding both leashes in the same hand and I'm dropping both leashes at the same time. And then I start doing it. We're walking and I drop the leashes with a big helping the dog with the hand signal. I want you to drop or down, whatever works for you. Same thing. We're going to build that in with lots and lots of repetitions. And then I'm going to start doing it in weird places, like in the doorway, at the gate, getting out of the car, getting into the car. When I want the dog to lie down in the car, I demonstratively throw their leash down. <laughs> okay. Not so, a dog in the car. All right. So I have another question. Sure. So when you start out with the dog is on its leash and you have the second leash, right? And you're just with the hand that you've trained drop, whether you're left or right handed, doesn't matter, whatever hand it is you're using, you throw the leash down. Are you hanging on to the dog with the other hand? Is the in other, the is the dog's leash in, in the other oh, hand? So, so once I get to the point that I'm, that the dog is either only on one leash or I'm actually throwing down the leash that the dog is on, that I would be using for care and safety, then I'm practicing this in safe environments until I'm sure that we've got a reliable behavior. Okay. But when you first start, are you holding onto the leash or is the dog's leash just lying on the ground? Okay. I'm usually, I'm usually holding onto it. Sometimes it's dragging and I can step on it if I need to. Okay. Because um, my experience is, so again, most of the time we're building this with a board and train. So a dog who may or may not do polite leash walking, a dog that may or may not come when called, right? So right. we want to keep care and control of that that learner. Right. That being said, what I am finding is as we're building this in, it's making polite leash walking and coming when called better because the dog never knows when the crazy woman with the chicken is going to drop a leash and then we down and chicken ensues and it's a very funny game. She's very odd. So. Okay. It engages, in my experience, it's engaging the dog in paying attention to what the handler is doing instead of me having to pay attention to what the dog's doing. So they're watching for my, like, it, think of it like a game of almost gotcha, right? Like, I'm going to see if I can catch you unaware that I dropped the leash. The dog, it switches the energy of the whole thing. And then I start weaning back how demonstrative I am about dropping the leash. And if I catch the dog unaware, I do the whole, oh no, you need to down the leashes on the ground. What's happened? It's terrible. You could be lost. Like there's big drama about like, oh my goodness, you missed the signal, right? Starting to build in some responsibility on the dog's behalf. So, it's been working really well. People are enjoying it. You know, Tina, Tina, I have a, a, a request for sure. you. Uh -oh. would, would it be possible for you to put this in a short little video that we could include in the show notes? Just, uh -huh. it, it doesn't have to be the training process. Or at some point, can you just show how one of your dogs do it so people have an idea, just get a vision of what this is going to look like? Or so is that... The cobbler's kids have no shoes, but I do have some video of a board and train that we're doing it with. And so, yes, I'll be happy to let me get permission from yes, absolutely. the person in the video, but I'm sure that that won't be a problem. And I will be happy to share the video. My experience is that the dogs think this is really funny, mm -hmm. right? It becomes a silly game of, you know, when's the handler going to do something zany? 
And we've even used it for dogs who are um, worried, right? So we use it as a game to float the dog over um, experiences that might be concerning for them as the pug barks in the background. Yes. Well, you know, I'm glad you said that because one of the things that when I'm working with dogs, especially dogs who are fearful, what I tell people is I have sort of a three-prong approach here. One is, is behavior modification. Two, we look at husbandry issues. You know, we look at food and exercise and um, sleep and all those husbandry things that could probably help to influence a dog. But the third thing I look at is some training. So that when you're out and about with your dog who's kind of fearful, right? And so um, now there's this, like, do you, I don't think you notice this, but there's a fire-breathing dragon on the other side of the street, and then there's Sasquatch on this side of the street. So as we're waiting for the fire-breathing dragon and Sasquatch to move along, if I've trained my dog some things like I have this little thing called a toss-and-treat recall, or we play target, or we down, or we do puppy push-ups, or if the dog is something to do, that's fun and he has some confidence in, now we're diverting his attention from the fire-breathing dragon and he's doing something that actually builds his confidence. So I find that actually having training fearful dogs to do things helps to build confidence across the spectrum for them. Have you found that to be true? Yes, and the, the trick is to not only use those exercises when the terrifying dragon or Absolutely. is Absolutely. there, right? So that's why I'm talking about this whole like ding dong randomly for the doorbell or dropping the leash randomly so that the dog thinks it's funny. I, I'm right. It's kind of like when I tell people to use through a dog's ear music to calm their dog. Don't just do it when you're leaving. <laughs> right. right. Like, we don't want okay, it to be the so, cue to be anxious. Right. It's like someone telling you to calm down. The only time that. someone tells you to calm down is when, like, there's a perfectly reasonable reason to be losing your marbles, right? To be anything but calm. So often, I I encourage people to do Crazy Ivan from Hunt for Red October, right? Randomly, the Russian submarine turns sideways to listen behind them. So randomly, I'm going to throw chicken in the grass and do go hunt for the dog who maybe is a little bit reactive on a walk. Or I might do it down on a dime with this drop a leash thing, or I might do a nose touch, or I might do, I might play the, on this walk today, there's chicken in the mailboxes because I have permission from my neighbors to do that. So we walk to a mailbox, I open the mailbox, give the dog a piece of chicken, and off we go to the next mailbox, and the dog just thinks I'm weird. I'm actually fine with the dog thinking that I'm weird. I probably am weird. So I have set a goal for myself. We'll see if maybe the the rest of the the podcast listeners will do this along with us. Um, But I'm going to set a goal to work with my dogs. One dog, only one. I'm not, I don't, they'll probably end up being more than that. But right now, one dog, 10 minutes a day. That's it. I'm going to set my goal, 10 minutes. I'm going to set a timer on the phone and each day, just teach my dog something for 10 minutes. Okay. I will, you know what? I will rise to that challenge too. Cause I've been, it's funny because I've been thinking the same thing that, that my dogs, people say, you must have really well-behaved dogs. And I'm like, no, no, I have well-managed dogs. I don't have well-behaved dogs, but I Me should neither. have. What? Me neither. So Me neither. So 
All right, so Tina and I are both putting reminders in our phones as we speak that um, we are going to train our dogs for 10 minutes a day. And I'm thinking that probably in the morning is going to be the best time for me, like around 7 a.m. I'm going to try and put that in the calendar. Oh, holy guacamole. At 7 a.m., I'm doing my exercises for Dr. Wheeler for my hip. And then I do my neurofeedback. And then I clean the bathrooms. And then I check the the have a heart trap in the crawl space while I take recycling out. I'll have to figure out where in my where in my atomic habits working the dog fits in. Okay, maybe well, when immediately they, after lunch. That sounds like yeah. a good time. I, I'm, anyway, I'm I'm, I'm going to try that seven a.m. I'm I'm still drinking coffee at seven a.m. So I don't know if it's going to happen, no. but but it might. So I'm going to experiment. I'm going to try that, and then it's as I ten minutes. Just like, 10 I'm minutes. Not saying, I'm not saying work the dog an hour. I'm saying pick something. It can even be review for 10 minutes. Right. Right. So I'm so, going to teach. I think mine I'm going to teach is, is I'm going to try and teach Zuzu a drop. Her down is like, okay, I know I go down and then she can't seem to hold it down. So um, I'm going to work. Or maybe, maybe if I teach her drop, we'll hold that better than if we'll hold it down because it's a new behavior. So, so I'm going to work. So how have you tried to communicate to sweet Zuzu that you want her to stay there? Well, I haven't really. Um, <laughs> well, okay. one of the things I'll do is, is I'll ask her to stay and then I'll feed her and then she stays down, feed her a little bit more, just sort of try to sort of spread out the feeding so that we're spending more time in down. And the longer we spend in down, the more likely a treat's going to happen. So, um, anyway, Zuzu's special. So, so I, would, I would actually do it the other way. I would be like down and it's like an open bar. Okay. And then slowly spread the time out. Okay. You know, it's funny. I do that with, with no jumping, with no jumping. I'm always good dog, good dog, throwing it down on the ground. And then as they start to calm down, I start to space it out. So I will do the same thing with her. Okay. Yeah. Well then, you know, what we need to do is the next one we need to report back to our listeners how have we done at this 10 minutes a day and what have we achieved with our dogs in this 10 minutes a day because if we as trainers can't do that and provide some feedback then how are we going to expect others to do the same thing right exactly all right Right. so so i will own that the cobbler's kids have no shoes (laughs) yes (laughs) i own that too I am proud to announce. So, you know, we have little mister who was an unplanned addition to the household and he's significantly shortened my list of things dogs in my household have never done. Okay. So he and I earned our novice tricks title last Thursday. Well, good for you. I have no idea what that means. It's an AKC program. Is it? Yes. And you can actually even, um, you can do it with video if you don't want to meet in person with people. So you can record your tricks and have a, a CGC evaluator do an evaluation of your dog for their, their novice title. So we've learned, we've earned novice. It is the first and only AKC title I have ever um, put on a dog to my knowledge. I think um, though I'm old, so I suppose I could have done something at nine year old that I don't remember. Uh, and we're going to move on to intermediate. So he, that's I'm what impressed. I've been doing. Well, that's I great. Really, I don't really care about titles, but congratulations! It was, it was fun to be able. He thinks that the trick work is pretty funny, 
So, and it gives he and I something constructive to do where it's bonding us in a different way. And I think with a 10 year old dog, being able to say, you know, we are teaching a 10 year old dog new tricks is a win. So I think that's a win too. He and I are are learning together. So we're also learning that some tricks he is never going to do. And that is okay too. That is okay. Um, I kind of feel that same way with, with Zuzu. There are certain things like she, she will, she does not like frozen Kongs. They just, they're too hard. I can't do them. She will just abandon them. So she never gets a frozen Kong because it's just, it's just too frustrating for her. And and that's just Zuzu. So, you know, it is what it is. I, I still recommend them to clients because most dogs don't have this, I can't do it attitude. Um, so we'll see. But um, I think those special dogs teach us flexibility. Yes. I think we forget sometimes. I know the feral dogs have helped me with this where I had a certain belief, like all dogs have this, like all dogs like a frozen Kong or all dogs know this or all dogs do that or don't do that or whatever. And the feral dogs and special dogs in my life have taught me the flexibility of don't assume those things because it may or may not be true. Right. Um, So, so. For example, not all dogs are going to come to you when they find themselves, whether it's through a leash failure or a collar failure, naked. So I want to teach that down for when there's an equipment failure. Right. Right. Like, if you're not attached to me, I want you to downstay so that I can, like, deal with that, even if it's that it's like today where... um, one of my dear friends has her birthday today and we chased a round of Brie through the Sam's club parking lot. Cause <laughs> <laughs> it got away from us. It was like the funniest thing. So it was truly a wheel of Brie. A wheel of um, Brie. As it was, you know, it went across, I don't know, four lanes of traffic. It was pretty funny. Wow. We, in the parking lot, like no one was going quickly. So that was fortunate for us and it did not get squished. Um, but we were cackling like loons. So there's that. Um, so what I would say is there's a little bit for me of can we plan for the unexpected? Right. So right. I have dropped a leash. I'm sure you have dropped a leash accidentally. Or recently I had a leash that was being used in dog class fail and come apart in my hands. And it was a reactive dog. Oh, so being able to have a plan for what to do with that was, now that dog was not trained to it down, but he has a very nice nose touch. So we nose touched, I grabbed a hold of his collar, we swapped out the leash and we did great. So having a plan for, to, for what to do when your dog doesn't know what to do seems like a good idea. And I like the idea of training in five and 10 minutes increments. Yesterday I trained Mr. While Christopher was making roasted cauliflower for us. I got to talk to Christopher. He got to see me work the dog. The dog was happy. It was a good time was had by all. Right. Well, what I tell my clients is that they, they, I said, I don't know anyone. Not a single person these days who can carve out a half an hour, much less an hour a day to train your dog. Nobody can do that. So what I suggest is, is that I ask them to commit to somewhere between three to five, five-minute sessions a day. And if each one of you can do five five-minute sessions, 
then your dog will have 10 five-minute sessions, and that's your hour of training a day. And if you do it in little five-minute increments, then you can focus on something in particular that you really want to work on. And or if you're working on something and the dog gives you that perfect down or that perfect sit or that perfect spin or whatever it is you're working on, you end it right there. So maybe you had a three-minute training session, but you had a really successful one ending on a super positive note. And that, actually, I find more people can comply with that, and it helps them to relax and enjoy their training because it's not like I've got to find an hour somewhere between the kids' soccer practice and making dinner and going to the grocery store and, you know, checking up on homework and, you know, getting the report done for my boss. Nobody has an hour, but you can find, hopefully, five to ten minutes. So, Well, and I'm a huge fan of Suzanne Clothier's um, Polite Puppy program, right? So what you do is you take behaviors well known to the dog. So for most people, that's at least sit, right? But hopefully, like you could teach a nose touch in an afternoon, no problem, right? And there's lots of things that you can, you can teach a, a paw very quickly, you can teach a spin pretty quickly. So there's, it's easy to build in behaviors just 10 minutes at a time. But what she does is she randomly picks a behavior the dog knows, and anytime the dog has the requirement of using your thumbs, they want to borrow your thumbs to say, open a crate door or open a door to outside or have you give them their food bowl or have you throw the ball for them. You politely, kindly ask for the known behavior. So let's say we're recording on a Wednesday. Let's say Wednesday is down day, right? I My dog goes to the back door and rings the bell, says, hey, I'd like to go outside. I walk to the door and I ask for a very nice down. The dog looks at me like I've lost my mind. Have I forgotten how to open a doorknob? I go, oh, that's so sad. I move away. I come right back. I cue the down again. The dog makes a puzzled look and wags his tail and smiles at me knowingly because he's put in all these years of training as human and she's obviously broken. I move away again, take a tiny break represent the question again. So I'm not escalating. I'm not being ugly to the dog. I'm just giving them lots of opportunities to not phone it in, right? Lots of people ask for a sit for everything. Well, you get a dog who doesn't listen. He just sits, right? That that wasn't, this is relationship building. Like I'm saying words, what do they mean? So by switching it up, you get a much more engaged learner. And Suzanne's really beautiful and beautifully gifted at at folding, zippering in this relationship work with living with your dog, which is a beautiful thing that I think most of us would like to have elegant answers. So I really like the polite puppy poker, too. And if you find like, okay, well, we only have two things. We have a sit and a nose touch. Well, then maybe spend your 10 minutes coming up with say please and a down and a spin and now you have more things to add to your right your game right all right well this has been i think a really fun uh, episode i think that the summation of of this is that you can you can change your dog's habits into ones that are more positive you can do it in 10 minutes a day you can use it using environmental cues and we give you some clear instructions on how to get started on a couple of these things that you might be interested in 
If you like this episode, if you like us, if you like your family dog, we would really appreciate a five-star review wherever it is you get your podcasts. And do like us on uh, social media, on Facebook. And uh, you can like me on Twitter. You'll get... uh, um, you can connect with me on Twitter, and you'll get all the updates from your family dog go through my Twitter account. So, you anyway, can also share it. Like, yes, share absolutely. With other people, if yes, you think helpful. So, we appreciate that, and we'll see you all next time on Your Family Dog. Thanks for listening to Your Family Dog. Got questions? Interesting ideas? Visit www.yourfamilydogpodcast.com to share your thoughts.